You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to be in the 135th Psalm. Uh, I'll give you a, a pretty quick recap of why we do this over the course of uh, the last several summers. And I remember the first time we did this, I think it was 2015 or 16. I didn't know anyone else who was doing this. And I was just skimming the internet this weekend. And apparently everyone, all churches everywhere are in the Psalms. Um, we thought we got it from John Calvin 500 years ago, uh, a, a pastor uh, that, that was kind of a, in the Reformation age. Um, but maybe we started a trend. Uh, either way, let's go do it. So Psalm 135 is the very end of a period of psalms, 15 of them called the Psalms of Ascent. We had one of those last week. They're, they're these psalms of, of praise to anticipate returning to Jerusalem. These people would have this not only topographical ascent, that is they were going up to Zion, higher in elevation, but there was a, a theological, spiritual experience of going up to meet with God at one of the three feasts. And this is the last, not a psalm of ascent, but most people think that it's arranged as the conclusion of this. And it, it kind of serves as like the, the ultimate, you'll see in a minute here, a mashup. It is a throwback. It is a remake to uh, all these other different psalms. In fact, uh, one, one commentator puts it this way, that every verse of this song either echoes, quotes, or is quoted by some other part of Scripture. And so you'll find some very familiar things here. Now that just means that if you're kind of like, I like the, right, the, the Dolly Parton version, or I like the Whitney Houston version, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, this is like the, the remake. This is the, the recap. This is a throwback, a mashup of the previous version. And so a lot of what we'll be reading will sound familiar if you've been walking through the Psalms with us for the last several years. But if you haven't, then you might be wondering why. Why are we humming along these old songs? Well, when Jesus was resurrected, as he appeared to the apostles in Luke chapter 24, he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, this is twice he's done this in this very chapter. Uh, if any of us would have just had some sort of a recording device at this particular moment, it would have been the greatest uh, sermon ever delivered. He just like, and then, and then he helped them understand the scriptures. Oh, just like that. Thanks, Jesus. Right? We wish we could get some of this, but listen to what happened. It says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So why do we open this text? Because as I hope we can kind of see here, we get the echoes of the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. We get from the Psalms the language of faith, the language of beginning to understand and to talk about this. It, this teaches us how to talk about who God is and what he has done. So let's begin reading the conclusion of these Psalms of Ascent. We'll read these 21 verses, kind of summarize it a little bit, and I think there'll be some powerful encouragements for you and for me here. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord does, or excuse me, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, and on earth, and in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it, is, it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. 
The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. In this call to praise, I want to begin and end with a question. Who or what in your life is the object of ultimate praise? Who or what in your own life is the object of ultimate praise? Now, that might be a word you're not familiar with using. And I hope that, even as this is a mashup and a callback to other Psalms or other parts of the Bible, to demystify a couple of terms. Uh, that one of those being praise, because this word shows up several times in the text. But under it is this idea of, in the Psalms and the rest of the Bible of glory. We'll say even things we sung just a moment ago, to glorify the Lord. Another way of saying praise the Lord. And then you'll hear the language, if you saw there in the turn of verse 15, of idolatry or idols. Now, if you're not a believer in this room, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing, I'm really grateful you're here. In many ways, you're, reason, you're the reason we exist. We're so grateful that you're here. And, and, and I want to speak directly to you in those terms because one of the most beautiful things about the Bible is just how accurate and helpful it is at describing reality. It's just so good of, about saying the way that things really are. And so those terms that it uses, glory, idolatry, and praise, they sound like religious terms. They sound like things that just religious people would say. And I want you to see here, and I hope this psalm kind of invites you to consider a mystery, that those aren't the language of religion necessarily. Those are simply the kinds of terms we need to understand life. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. So we have here a, a psalm of praise, an exhortation to praise. Now you might not know this, but every time this word praise the Lord shows up, it is the bookends of this particular psalm. Did you see that? It begins, praise the Lord. The very last verse, praise the Lord. Now this, for all you uh, Bible nerds in the room, this is what's called a chiastic structure. And you get to push your nose, or push your, well you can probably tilt your nose up and look down at us as well, but you can kind of adjust your glasses and you're going to nerd out with me because the structure is the, kind of a building. Now in Western literature, the structure is, is kind of like, a, it's, it's pretty repetitive, it's in every movie basically, but some sort of like introduction of a hero who meets a guide and has some sort of, you know, difficult, awful thing, and then the climax at the very end is like, uh, is like the, the victory that comes at the conclusion. That's a Western way of thinking, right? And so most of, most of the ways we communicate is we say like the best for last, as it were. But Eastern literature, Eastern poetry, especially like this, isn't the same. Instead, you have kind of like a bookend that tells you what it is that the psalm is about, the first and the last. And then it peaks, kind of climaxes somewhere in the middle, probably verse 13 and 14. So the climax, or the most important part, is dead center, or at least dead center of the structure. So what is this? Praise the Lord. This word, praise the Lord, is one word and it is an imperative, and it's the word hallelujah. We sung it a few times today already. Now, you might not have known this, but it is an imperative, quite literally. You, you praise the Lord. It's a command. And so it begins not just with an exclamation, like, oh, praise the Lord, as if, as if it would say, I should praise the Lord. But it is a command to people who are listening to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's the command. And I want to contend to you today that there is joy and hope unspeakable found in responding affirmatively to that command. Praise the Lord. So let me define some terms. First, glory. We sung about it a moment ago. We hear us talk about it. Glorify the Lord. Glorify God. Uh, well, glory has kind of two different uses in the Old Testament and the New. Um, its root word simply means weight. And so glory is weight, 
It is, might even, if you're the physics nerd in the room, it's mass. It is, it is the greatness of its, of its quantity, quality. That's what glory is. It's simply weight. And so that which is glorious is the thing that is the weightiest. And so, for example, maybe if I were to rephrase that question, who or what in your life is the object of ultimate praise, and that's language that, oh, I don't know if I think about praising things. I don't extol or admire or I, I, don't, I don't speak positively about these things, which are all interchangeable for the word of praise. Maybe if you thought about the idea of glory behind it, it would be helpful. Who or what in your life has the most weight? Who or what in your life is the most significant? Because when you think about glory as weight, you can think about gravity and mass. That is, gravity is simply a byproduct of great mass. That which is great and massive has great gravity. It pulls things to it. It has a way of drawing things to it. So who or what in your life has the most powerful force of gravity? Who or what in your life draws everything to it? It's what you think about when you, when you like even now, as you're going to, right, uh, as you start to kind of space out, you go there. You, you gravitate towards it. The next phrase that's used here, or the next way that the, the word glory is used is the language of radiance. Brightness. It's glorious. It's bright. It's so, it's so bright, in fact, this is the language the, the Bible uses, that you want to look at it and yet can't, right? It's, if, something, if something flashed or was amazing and sparked up here in front of us, we would all look at it, and yet evidently the glory of God, even though it draws our attention, draws our gaze, is too bright for us to gaze upon, kind of like staring at the sun. It's, so, it's glorious, but glorious to the extent that you can't really like begin to plumb the depths of its glory without causing yourself great harm. So also is the idea of glory. So here we are again. Who or what in your life is the thing you can't look away from? Who or what in your life draws the most of your attention? And as you begin to think about those things, you are now speaking about the language of praise. Now, you might not have meant that. You certainly might not have done that intentionally. But you are praising something. And so, the bookends of this psalm are an invitation for you and I to consider what it would look like to praise God. Now, inside of those bookends, I think you'll see in between, the next step is the who. If, if the what is praise the Lord, the who is found right inside of those two bookends. Look at the first four verses. Who? Who should praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise who? The servants of the Lord, that is the people of God. This might have been literally speaking to the Levites, people serving the people of God, interceding for them, the priestly people who are helping and loving the people around them, the people of God, but those who stand in the house of the Lord. Okay, now anyone who, who had made their way to Jerusalem, particularly here, maybe in the Psalms of Ascent, or, or in this any time who, who was just kind of co contemplating the very presence of God, praise the Lord. Those are in the courts of the house of our God. That's the, out, that's the outer, uh, think of it as like the outside, right? That's, like, that's where the, the Gentiles, the nations, those who were not of God's people, but yet invited to praise and experience the presence of God, even if from a distance. Praise the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel has his own possession. Now look at the last half of the bookend. You find that in verse 19. The who. If the what is praise the Lord, the who is, we already saw this, the servants of the Lord. But then it's in an invitation to praise the Lord for a broader who. Verse 19. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, House of the great high priest, praise the Lord. House of Levi, the servants again of the Lord, bless the Lord. But then it just gets brought. You fear the Lord. You have, you have any sort of imagination for the supernatural, any, any sort of imagination for something that might be bigger, better, and more amazing than you. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Now the for what is what fits inside of those two bookends. And we get a description of praise. A description of praise that, at least for our time, here's, here's what I would talk, say to you about three things about praise. Where it belongs, where it tends to go, and then lastly, how you get it right. 
So this psalm helps us see what praise is, what is praiseworthy, where it ought to go, where it tends to go, and then how we get it right. And that's why I ask, after all, if this is what the psalm is about, then to take stock of that would be helpful. What or who in your life is the object of ultimate praise? What is the thing that you slip into every conversation, whether you mean to or not? What is that thing that you can, you can make any conversation about? You can, kind of, you can sort of make it about that. You can slip it in. What's the thing that keeps you up at night? What's the thing that grabs your attention? You can't look away from it, even though it's burning your eyes out. So, first, uh, beginning in verse 5, where it ought to go. We get a picture of the greatness of the Lord. I know that the Lord is great, and, what, and I know that our Lord is above all gods. And now you get a picture of the omnipotence, the omniscience of God. We call it the sovereignty of God. Whatever the Lord wills, the Lord does. Whatever the Lord wills, the Lord does. And then, not only that, it's visible in, in things that you and I had not even considered. He makes the clouds. He makes lightning and rain and wind. The sovereignty of God is visible even in every single bit of creation. We believe that God is over all. Now, now I know that for you and I, that's a mystery that is only apprehended by faith. It's not, a, it's not something any of us could just understand because you and I have encountered many things that, from our perspective, don't make sense. And we're invited to praise the Lord for that very purpose. Because after all, even as I tell you, the Lord is sovereign over everything. Everything, you can think of things like that can't be right. right? You can immediately think of, well, how can God be good and sovereign? How can there be a God that's over all things and then there's fill in the blank? Now, the Psalms give us, in other places, language for that very thing, and I want to commend them to you. It is right to lament, cry out to God in those areas, but here's the catch. The fact that you answer, or excuse me, that you ask that question, namely, how can there be a good and sovereign God and there be what, shows that you are not him. And so at the very least, you and I are invited to, to begin to, like, with faith, have our eyes open to a mystery, that there is a God who is sovereign over the things that even make no sense to us. Now, that isn't meant to be used as a weapon. Uh, don't tell your suffering friend that, well, you know, the Lord's sovereign. Like, don't do that. That's meant to be a comfort, even if it's a deep and painful comfort. There is a God who is good. What he does in verse 4, he chooses a people for himself, loves and elects a people. He's a God who doesn't just sit up there and out there, but comes to bless a people, through which the whole of all peoples and the nations will be blessed. He's great. He's above all other gods. He's sovereign over everything. So he's sovereign over creation. So praise ought to go to him, verse 8. Then he's sovereign over redemption. And now you get the story of the people of Israel, the story of the Bible, as it were. What did God do? He delivered his people from slavery. Again, think of the language of faith that this, that, that, that this psalm and other psalms help us to begin to employ. The language of redemption, being set free, being in awe. The language of knowing that the enemies have been defeated. Did you hear that from verse 10? He struck down Pharaoh, struck down people who opposed God and even God's people, and then blessed his people with a land, a promise, and a heritage. So think of those are the, lang- that's the language of faith we begin to use. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll even say that like the language of freedom, the language of being set free. Right? I, I, can't, I can't tell you in my own experience how many people I've met who would call themselves Christian, but if you ask them to describe their life, freedom is not a word they would use. Redemption. The recipient of a great blessing and heritage. This is the language of faith. And so therefore, we should praise the Lord for this. And here's the climax. For your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. That, that language of your name, uh, that's that's exceptionally important, especially because it's followed by, if it, depending on your translation will work, that word, O Lord, is in all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. That's the name Yahweh, the God that is, right? The, as, as Moses goes and, and says, all right, you want me to help set these people free, Lord, who shall I say has sent me? And, and the Lord re- responds, I am. Now, don't miss, that's a knock, right? Um, if I tell you, like, you know, hey, you know, who are you? I'd be like, I am the friend that is. 
uh, you, would, you would hear the knock and you'd be like, oh, so there are friends that are not. You get the idea? And, and the Lord says to Moses, you go and tell them that the God who is sent you. And they will feel the weight of that. Are you saying there are gods that are not? Oh, yes. The name of the Lord. But also the idea of name is the language of self-revelation. If you don't believe me, uh, before you leave today, look at someone, uh, this will be fun, because uh, hopefully you won't do it to me, but oh, maybe you will. Look at someone today you don't know, and before you leave, go up there and introduce yourself, but then guess their name. Just for fun. You look like a, right? Just guess. Maybe you'll get close, right? Some people with certain names look alike, we have to admit. And yet, to know their name implies what? Some sort of self-revelation. That is that we trust and love the God, his name, his characteristic, who he is, what God is like, we know because he has introduced himself to us. A God who is not up there and out there, but introduces himself to his people. So the climax of praise, praise God because his name, who he is, what God is like, his characteristics visible for the rest of the Bible and the rest of eternity are on display here. He is the Lord that endures. He is the Lord that, verse 14, will bring ultimate justice for his people and vindicate them, but also perfect compassion and mercy. Now, this is, this is exceptionally important for us as well because you and I struggle with those two things, right? We, we tend to mix one with the other. Even, even when we try to, to do what is just, we always tip on the side of either being lenient and apathetic or vengeful. And yet the, the character of the Lord is on display in it that his justice and compassion and mercy are perfect. He is perfectly and fully just. He is perfectly and fully merciful. And therefore, you should praise him. So, this is where praise belongs. But then we see where praise tends to go. And if the language of faith that the Psalms gives us as a church that hopefully you'll hear us say regularly, words like praise, glory, you get the idea, then one of the other things that you'll hear us say a lot, if you hang around this group of people very often, because we open the Bible and find it, is where praise tends to go. Verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And he gives a description of what worshiping idols would look like. Now this is the language of faith for us in that while you might not craft a golden image like the people did in Exodus as they were being delivered, while you might not craft some sort of ornate, I don't know, creature character that has mouths, eyes, ears, at least in appearance, while you might not do that, I want to contend to you the reality of idolatry in your heart and mind. Friend, you will worship something. Now, there are lots of great resources. Again, this is a crash course. After all, this song is a mashup. Um, I can't say everything about glory and idolatry today, but if you hang around as we walk through the Bible, the rest of the Bible tends to explain it. But for the purpose of this morning, the crash course in idolatry could be summarized, as John Calvin says, that the, the human mind and heart is a forge of idols. That is, that they're always the language of metallurgy, right? The, the language of always crafting and forging out more graven images, the human heart is insatiable. It longs more than anything else. Now, praise God for the scientific method. The scientific method helps us overcome that, helps us overcome our passions and observe something repeatedly to see what's, what's observably true. And the reason is because if we didn't do that, we would just fill in the gap with our own desires. Now, what happens is that good Westerners, like most of you in this room, you're tricked into thinking that we are thinking beings. Really, like I, I think, I, I am the result of my thoughts, and the, I am a result of the, uh, the things that I know and the things that I understand. And I want you to know that's actually very far from the truth. It would be more accurate to say that we are desiring beings. Because after all, it won't be really hard for you to do something thoughtless or foolish or silly today. I'm a thinking being. Really? Did, what, what, what was that, right? 
But one thing that you can't turn off is desire, longing. And every single one of you, the first thing you experienced when you woke up this morning was some desire for something. Uh, for many of you, I can tell it was just more sleep, right? And I thank you that we, we get to, I want to ex, expand your attention span for God's word um, and the ministry of peace of Christ upon you, right? Or maybe some of you desired, like me, coffee or breakfast, right? Or any other thing. And you probably, because of a desire, a longing that you couldn't turn off if you want to, went to the bathroom. And while you would love to think that you're a thinking being, ultimately you're a desiring being. And what you long for, the things that you find in your own life for which you are insatiable, say more about you than anything else. And I want you invite, to invite you into a mystery of creation. That's exactly how God created you to be. Augustine says it this way, that we are restless, paraphrasing here, until we find our rest in God. Ecclesiastes tells us that, that ultimately the, the heart of humanity is an insatiable, it's a bottomless pit. God has set eternity into the hearts of his people. There's something eternally empty in us that demands something eternally fulfilling. You will worship something and it will be visible in what you long for, what you desire, what you wish for, what you pray for. That's the thing you worship. That's the thing you worship. Romans 1 says that the, the greatest despair of life comes when we trade that which is worthy of worship, namely the infinite and eternal God who is sovereign over right creation and redemption for something that's a created thing. We trade the creator for something that the creator created. And even worse, we find here the, the depravity of the human heart is that we take something like not just that the Creator created, but something that we have created. Did you hear that? It's fashioned by human hands. Prophet Isaiah speaks directly to this. That we try to be satisfied in these lesser things. Hollow things. Empty things. And here's the worst part of it. Did you hear that? Those who make them, those who craft things that they begin to worship, become like them. And then so do all who trust in them. So let's put some of these things together. You will worship something. You will worship something. I try to quote this as, as rarely as possible because otherwise I think I would quote it every time the word worship or the idea of praise, the idea of glory comes up. This is from a, a writer uh, named David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace is not a Christian, not a believer, and yet in his own personal struggle with addiction, deep and life-threatening despair and depression. This says this. This was, a, this was kind of one of the most powerful things he said. He said this at a, at a commencement address. And when you read the fullness of this address, you'll despair over how whatever your commencement address was wasn't as good. It, it did not. My commencement, I don't know what it was, but it didn't prepare me for what David Foster Wallace was given these people of Kenyon College. Because here's something that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it, and again, he speaks of Jesus Christ as JC. I need to do that more. JC, we, we tight. No be it J.C. or Allah, or be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some intangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you, bury you. 
On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Get it? I don't know what your graduation speech was. Mine wasn't as good. Look, now here's why I disagree with him, but again, he's not a Christian, but just simply observing things that I, I think are helpful and true. But here's why I disagree with him. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. Now, I would present to you the Bible that says that's exactly what they are. That's why they destroy you. But, David Foster Wallace, you're a smart guy. I get your point. He says the insidious thing isn't that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom the freedom to be the lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Little skull-sized kingdom. This was the man who knew the despair of worshiping things that did not satisfy. A couple years after he delivered this speech, he lost finally his battle to depression and despair and died of suicide in his own home in 2008. And he gets at, I think, what we find in the next little bit is that we become what we behold. Did you hear that? that? Those who make those idols start to be shaped by them. They start to be as lifeless as them. Did you hear, like, I mean, kind of just the painful despair of Wallace's own words? Like, you're longing for it, you're worshiping it, and, and, and when you want it, it's always out of reach. It owns you. The psalmist says here the reason is because you become what you behold. When you set your sights on it, it starts to shape you. It starts to change you. It has power over you. And so it's not just that you will worship something. Thank you, David Foster Wallace, and thank you to the psalmist. That's right. But it's more than that. It's what you worship will start to shape you. And it's just that for us, and for the purpose of our time together today, I want to invite you to behold and see something glorious. If we're going to become something that we're fixated upon, then back to that question I asked, what's the thing that you're currently fixated upon? And is it possible that the psalmist is offering up something, did you hear in verse 13, that endures forever? Is that thing that has all the gravity and glory and worship and praise in your life going to last forever? Well, then in the end, it will own you. It will always be right out of reach. You'll be its slave. And I want to contend to you the possibility that Jesus is glorious. So let me give you just two. If you're in this room, maybe you're not a Christian, I just want to contend to you what we do regularly as we gather on a Sunday, and that is we turn our eyes and fix our gaze upon Jesus. Let me give you just two. Here's something I think you would all know is true, especially even if you're in this room and you're skeptical of the Bible and of Christians, uh, again, I'm really glad you're here, but we all know that one of the greatest acts of love that anyone could ever demonstrate to anyone else is that they would sacrifice themselves for a friend. We intrinsically know that's true. It's glorious, it's beautiful, and delightful. When you see the sacrifice of someone else, something that has given itself up for something else, someone who lays down their life for their friend, there's something in us that cannot help but be in awe. It's glorious and beautiful, right? In, in, its, in its best and most sanctified sense, this is why we honor and love troops, military, 
This is why there's something special about, and it's most sanctified and, and, and best expression, police, law enforcement, and firefight, firefighters. There's, there's right, in its best sense, it's an ideal form. It's someone who's willing to sacrifice themselves for someone else. Now, are there, are there corrupt and perverted versions of this in the world? Absolutely. We'll get to that in just a moment. But something that died to give something beautiful is, is in itself beautiful. This is why, as Christians, this is why we pray and thank God around every meal. Because we know that something bled and died to be delicious and satisfying and nutritious for us. Now again, if you're, if you're vegan in the room, it, even then, a, a vine-ripened tomato is no longer alive and you benefited from it. Murderer. <laughs> Not really. Right? But there's, there's something beautiful and even satisfying. And you all know that's true. When someone sacrifices greatly for someone else, there's something beautiful. And what if I told you this? Do you know where that glorious axiom came from? Jesus, who said there is no greater love than this, but that a man lays down his life for his friends. And you know what's even more glorious? He put his money where his mouth is, and he did it. So just from, behold, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? That kind of sacrificial love. And here, this is, this is the, here's the second glorious and beautiful thing that, that we, we contemplate as a mystery together, and I want to like commend to you what if a man walked the earth, did amazing, miraculous things, became more famous than anyone else? What if a man made a positive impact in his teaching and acts upon all the people he encountered? What if that man predicted his own death and resurrection and then after he died, came back to life on the third day? I'm just saying, what if? What would you think about such a man? What would you think about such a person who is more powerful and influential than anyone in history? He predicted his own death and said he would come back from the dead, and then he did it. How would you interact with that man? And now you begin to see, isn't, that's the glory that we sing about every single Sunday. And we want to invite you into it. That's it! There's a man who walked the earth, did miraculous things, taught amazing things, said that he loved his people, would take their place, died and resurrected. And we just go, holy smokes, that's glorious. And we're inviting other people to see it. So just see for what it is, what we behold and how it shapes us. First John 3 says it this way, that ultimately that glorious thing that is Jesus is a picture of God's love to us that changes us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. If you came to our men's event uh, a couple of months ago, I spoke in this very text and, and kind of with an exhortation in this very way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He's our Father. We're adopted. You hear that language of choosing Jacob and Israel, giving him an identity and a name that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet happened. Think become. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because what? We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Did you hear that? We become that which we behold. And those of us that have beheld the beauty of the resurrected Jesus that has met each and every one of us by faith, he's messed us up. He's making us more like him in a way that we can't fully explain. And so my encouragement to you who are hoping in Jesus and hoping Jesus will get you out of it, I get to tell you, he's going to come back and everything will be all right. And the way that it will be all right is that we become what we behold. One day his very appearance will be so powerful that it will eradicate all evil and sin. It will be so powerful in his appearing that all of us and all of our flaws and failures, all of our sins, all of our weakness will immediately vanish just by seeing him. Paul tells the Corinthians this way, since we now have such a hope, now he's speaking about the, the veil that was over Moses who encountered God and he was so radiant, right? That glory, that, that glory was so radiant people couldn't look at Moses. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to the end, that is the law. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, 
that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it lifted, is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, remember the language of the psalm, God who sets the captives free, there is freedom, praise God. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you hear it? There is something new and beautiful happening in your life and mine as we behold Christ that is changing us into something that which is more and more glorious every time we see it, every time we look upon him and what he's, what he's taught and what he's accomplished for us. So back to the question, who or what in your life is the object of ultimate praise? And if you struggle to answer, apply the axiom that Paul tells the Corinthians here, that we become what we behold. Do me a favor, I dare you, ask a trusted friend, who or what do I look like? Ask a trusted friend, what do I resemble? What am I looking like more and more each day? And in all the grace of this psalm, that trusted and gracious friend will be able to tell you, oh, this is it. And, and just, again, this is the language of faith. We'll go, oh, I'm becoming that which I behold. Ask a trusted friend. Now, if you don't have a trusted friend, well, there is a whole other idol, right? There's probably safety. You don't trust anybody, right? And, and here's all I know to tell you is, aren't you glad Jesus didn't look at you and me that way? Well, aren't you glad that he didn't demand that we prove our loyalty to him. Aren't you glad that he gave himself freely to those who he could not trust? And even though we betrayed and turned on him, he gives himself freely to us anyway. And that starts to melt us and we begin to be able to be healed and trust others. Ask a trusted friend who or what do I look like? Because you become what you behold. So, here's another one. Do you see the language of, toward the end of that, that psalm? The idols of the nations. He's speaking again twice, he mentions the nations as the outsiders, those who have not beheld the glory of God and his creative and redemptive purposes. And so, friend, have love and sympathy for the people who have not yet beheld the glory of Jesus. Those of us who have seen and trusted Christ are not better than those who have not. We have just, by the mercy of God, some miraculous grace, had our eyes open to it. And so repent of any self-righteousness, repent of any sort of, right, like, sort of like, elitism against people who do not look, talk, think, and act like you. Those, those who do not know Jesus have not beheld that which is utterly and ultimately and infinitely glorious. And so have love and compassion, love and sympathy, love and mercy for the people who have not yet beheld the glory of Jesus. You are fortunate to have you had your eyes open to it. Invite people into your life that can redirect your gaze to that which is truly and infinitely glorious. Look what the psalmist models for us in verse 13. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. If ultimately our tendency is to regularly drift back like the nations, to worship lesser things, to hope in and to trust in, and then be conformed to the image of lesser and more awful things, then what's demanded by the psalm here, and the reason the psalm is here is that it's difficult, is that you have people in your life, like the psalmist, who stop and it, on a regular basis, like snap and go, uh-uh, praise the Lord. So who are the people that you've given permission, that you've invited, that you've submitted to, to redirect your gaze away from that which brings despair and ultimately is, did you hear that? Dumb, deaf, blind, and dead. Towards that which is infinitely glorious. Now, here's the commitment I'll make to you. As long as I have breath, and I'm so grateful for this privilege, it is so humbling, as long as I have breath, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, there will be someone, myself and others included, who will do this, who, who will regularly say, I know, I know, I know. I know that the things that you've been longing for, the unsatisfied places in your own heart and life, welcome in, stop for a moment, we're gonna redirect our gaze to something that's infinitely glorious. And for some of you, it may be more than snapping. For some of you, it might, might take some shaking. 
And so, have people in your life. Invite people into your life that redirect your gaze to that which is truly and infinitely glorious. One is the scripture. This is why we open the text, is that every single week we know we would talk about and glorify and magnify and worship and adore and extol lesser things and that our, our commitment to the scripture is that we're gonna always open it up and let the more glorious and infinite things show up. And as we behold it, it, it changes us. It, it changes everything about us. Invite people into your life that can redirect your gaze. I mean like when you're in real, real deep sorrow and despair. Not that, hey, redirect your gaze. This is going to make everything feel better. You're going to be happy. Oh, no. Because after all, sadness and disappointment is the inevitable result of living in the world. But despair is the inevitable result of hoping in it. Now, if you live in a broken, fallen world in which we now live, sadness, frustration, right, disappointment, it's coming your way. <laughs> it's, or, and most of you are like, it's, it got here, right? You're late. This is what it means to live in a world that's marred by sin. That we hope in and are surrounded by others who hope in lesser things. And those things fail. And that is incredibly disappointing. But you know what I'm talking about when I say there's a difference between sadness and despair. Because after all, if something awful happens that's outside of your control, that's unfortunate. And a good friend will help. And I mean, that's disappointing. I'm, I'm really sad with you about that. But have you ever felt when that thing failed, when that thing disappointed you, and you felt like you couldn't go on? Consider the possibility that that deep despair wasn't just something that was disappointing and sad, although I'm certain it was. It's that you were hoping in it. You were looking to it, longing for it. You were longing for it to give something that it had no ability to do. And so, friend, sadness and disappointment is inevitable in this world. The Psalms have language to help us through that. But despair, that I can't go on, friend, that's the language of an idol. So we've talked about where praise ought to go and where it tends to go. So how do you fix it rightly? Well, friend, grace is the fortune of a second chance after you wrecked your life chasing the wrong things. I know many of you are in here in this room with deep despair and deep shame because you have hunted after and longed after silly things, right? Foolish things. Looking to those things to give you something they were never intended to give. After all, they were simply created things. They were things that were meant to stir up your own awe of the creator. You were meant to see their fingerprints and go, this is amazing. Isn't the God who made this amazing? And I know many of you have staggered in this morning with the woeful scars or even the present open and bleeding wounds of hoping in this world. And the grace that Jesus offers us this morning is to grab your attention and say, that's okay. Look back at me. My love endures forever. The renown that he offers us, the grace that we experience and now I said second chance because I'm assuming maybe for some of you this is the first time you've considered it. I'm so grateful. For the rest of us who have considered it, just put in like whatever number that you can estimate. Third, fourth, seven billionth, right? Grace is the seven billionth, is, is the fortune of the seven billionth change or, or chance after you've wrecked some part of your life or someone else's and then refixed your gaze upon the mercy and grace of Jesus who being more truly glorious than anything that we could imagine, came in a great act of love, gave himself for people who did not deserve it, to take the place to pay for all of the rebellious idolatry they had already committed. After all, in our own hearts, we rebel against God, and idolatry is an act of rejection, saying, God, you're not good. I am. I want to do what I want to do. And Jesus, in a glorious act of mercy, came to take the place of and the punishment for every one of those people, you and me, and was resurrected on the third day so that we would know that the second, third, I don't know, 11 billionth chance is true and good. So friend, 
First verse, last verse. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Dispense with praising and hoping in lesser things. Dispense with praising and hoping in things that will end up in a landfill. Dispense with praising and hoping in accomplishments that in a hundred years no one will remember. See these things as temporary and good gifts that reflect the heart of the Father, but we're never meant to take the place of the Father. Praise Jesus, who is truly and infinitely glorious, who lived the life that you and I could never live, who took the place of our punishment for that very thing and was resurrected on the third day so that his glory and radiance would be so beautiful, we have to look at it, but so amazing that we'd have to look away. Grace is the experience the experience of God's acceptance and forgiveness when we've wrecked parts of our life chasing after the wrong things. Have you done foolish things recently? Praise Jesus. Have you been pursuing things that are deeply disappointing, haven't delivered? Man, join the club. Let's praise Jesus. Let's pray together and thank him that he is good and he endures forever. Lord, thank you so much that you speak to us. You speak a better word to us than the other things. The things that we long for are temporary and on a good day to give us satisfaction for a, a moment. But in the end, they, they deform us. They mutate us. They make us look as lifeless and foolish and dead and dumb as they are. So for the people in this room that maybe it's not silver or gold that's been crafted, maybe it's wealth, success, acceptance. Maybe in this room people deeply long for a kind of relationship or marriage or job or achievement or respect, admiration. God, we thank you. These are good gifts you give us. But they are a sour and bitter and lifeless replacement compared to the giver of every good gift. So might this morning we take stock of the things that we are worshiping and praising and trusting in, things maybe we wish we had right now. Might we admit these might be good things. Uh, maybe they're not maybe they're evil things, but maybe they're good things that we've just simply mutated into something that's now God. Thank you that according to the psalm, you are immutable. You do not mutate. Your goodness and your majesty endures forever. And it is on display for those who would look to Jesus and find it in his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for the grace that we get to come and try again to look back to you one more time. Thank you that you refix our gaze, redirect our thoughts, and are now transforming us from one level of glory to another the more that we see you. Jesus, thank you for your glory. Might we look to you even for, some of the, for the first time today. And maybe for the 11 billionth time, the rest of us will look to you and find the same grace waiting for us. Thank you, you were the truly satisfying gift. And it's by your work and your name that we come to the Father. Amen.